Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. Hello and welcome to another podcast from Disruptive HR. And today I'm talking to somebody who knows about learning. All right. So um, hello, Nick Shackleton-Jones. Hi, Lucy. Good to see you. And you, and you. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, I think pretty well, all con things considered. Um, finding ways, like many of us are, I think, to make our lives a bit more interesting. So, yeah, how about you? I mean, I just don't, I just don't know how much net Netflix I can watch. <laughs> uh, so far, it seems to be limitless. So, you know, it's a bit like heroin, though, isn't what, it? Have you been watching Bridgerton? What do you think of Bridgerton? Well, I, you know, I started Bridgerton three times because I like yeah. my bonnet dramas pure yeah <laughs> and um so I watched it well I thought I can't watch this second one second time same and then it's actually Karen um my business partner who said you'll love it mm. and I did and I did so, so here's I, the thing, I, though. I need to know where the, the Duke of Hastings gets his waistcoats because whoever's working, whoever's the costume designer on his outfits, I need their number. They are just they're the most unbelievable. Somebody could make a mint if they started producing those waistcoats. But there I, you I go, producers of uh, Bridgerton. Yeah. There's another yeah. revenue stream there. So you are uh, HR Director Talent and Learning at Deloitte. Um, yes. But... I kind of know you from the time of the BBC, uh, where you were involved in online learning. And actually, you've been doing the kind of whole digital online learning before it was even a thing. How did you get into that side of learning? That, well, that's a very kind description. I mean, when I was at the BBC, I was a mere minion and you were a towering personality <laughs> in the BBC. I can only aspire to having meetings with you back then. But um, yeah, I've been bumbling around in the industry for a while. Um, I, I, my first career actually was a psychology lecturer. Um, and so I spent five years. Um, I wrote some textbooks along the way as well um, in a, Koval, a college in Yeovil teaching mature students and young students and um it just even back then it just struck me as nuts what we were doing just kind of standing in a classroom writing stuff down and people copying it down to a textbook you know or in their notebook and they would forget it immediately and then they'd revise frantically before the exam <laughs> and it was that that was education um and that was believe it or not the early days of the internet and i had a, an interest in technology and i started creating flash websites just because i was fascinated by what the internet would be able to do Can you imagine that most people listening to this podcast well, some will remember the birth of the internet um but it was it was magical it was like harry potter you know it was like it's amazing what you can do and and so yeah i was experimenting and that took me to a job in you know like a, a, a startup consultancy um and then i went to work for seams communications and and that was the birth of um of e-learning. Back then it wasn't even called e-learning, it was CBT, computer-based training, and it was all on CDs. 
Yeah, so you were all you... taken into a room, banks yeah. of computers, yeah. and yeah. You, sat, you had sat and had to go yeah. through something. And we had this bank of CDs that we bought from a, um, a big company that won't um, mention, but and and we would sort of loan these out to different people, like you know, <laughs> go back to your cubicle and go wild. And I think the fantasy back then, and it's funny because it still keeps re-emerging. This fantasy was that you know there would be no classroom training, and and this was the pitch to organisations because yeah. it would all be on a CD, and you know you could whatever you wanted on cd and and this was the same time that encyclopedia britannica were kind of trying to sell their wares on cd as well and so there was there was a fundamental misapprehension but the funny thing is it never went away people it completely failed that sort of agenda overall and it sort of retreated into the compliance space but nobody ever stopped to really think about why and even now we're still doing the same thing we're still moving our lectures online and the the, the schools are moving them online and it's all sort of failing in a way you know with people go on the today program i had somebody the other day saying that this is awful and it's not good for students whatever but nobody's ever actually stopped to say why because you know really you're just kind of pushing the same lecture out by a different medium so that's still a very live question but yeah my my involvement goes all the way back um to 2001 i think and then you wrote how people learn which again picks up the scene so in, in the in the book you do ask the question why why is this stuff failed why are we still doing it why aren't we doing something different and what could we do um was that a kind of manifesto for you was it something that you just thought right i've just got to write it all down because it's it's appearing in blogs and speeches and, and actually i just want to kind of pull all of this together my manifesto Mm, manifesto makes it sound far more grand. I mean, my background was philosophy. And so I had a, a natural tendency to want to ask why, you know, and just to understand things. My observation was. You were was an I, annoying child, weren't you? Yeah, I do have some annoying adult. Yeah, it's kind of. But I, I, would, I would go to conferences and you'd see the same sorts of um, conversations popping up year after year. There were things like, how do we design learning more effectively? How do we link it? How do we measure impact? And what I realized year after year after year was that. All of these questions, none of them we would be able to answer until we had an understanding of learning. Fundamentally, the only way you can answer any of those questions is by actually really understanding learning. And there was um, a point in particular where I think I'd, I'd drunk the Kool-Aid. This was at Siemens Communications. It's probably like, you know, 20 something years ago. Um, and we were doing all this wonderful e-learning creation and we were, you know, varying it according to, you know, um, different learning styles and different modes of representation. It was all interactive and narrative driven and whatever. And I ran an experiment which compared, you know, this high-end e-learning with interaction, animation, audio, video or something with just somebody reading a, a notepad text of the same information. And we tested recall and we actually found that people recalled slightly more just from the text and it just for me it just highlighted that we'd all made, we'd made it all up it was just mumbo jumbo all this stuff we were doing instructional design babbly babbly it was just made up we hadn't really understood what we were doing it was just like a, a set of rituals like morris dancing and so at that point i decided that i needed to kind of really understand you know how people learn um and I, I, I think I, I, I figured that out yeah. um, and I felt I needed to kind of write it down. Um, it was it was certainly driving my practice as I went in. It was sort of coming out of the BBC, going into BP. The, the, it was coming together as a set of processes, you know. So how if you think you understand learning, how do you actually put that into practice? And it had got to the point where not only did I think I understood learning, but I think I understood how you could actually translate learning into effective learning design, but also education. 
And that was what the book was. It was like, look, let's say this is what learning really is. And how would we then begin to apply that in education and, and business? And that's why I think the book works so well, because I think there are you tend to kind of get these business books which either go hell for leather on analysing why something isn't working, mm. but are a bit light on the what might you do with it. Um, whereas, you know, or it's all about, you know, kind of tips for whereas you've got that real blend. So I really recommend I don't read a lot of business books. I tend to kind of look at summaries of them because I'm, I'm not I haven't got a very long attention span. Um, but this is one book that's really worth getting. So how people learn. And I just wanted to have have a look at just a couple of the the elements of it. I mean, it's 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 not a it's not a short read, is it? You know, it's it's an in-depth book. But there are a couple of things that really leapt out at me. And one of them is where you talk about effective context. So would yeah. you mind just describing what that is and then just give us a kind of Edited highlights of, of, you know, our listeners tend to be in the HR profession. There's you know, other business leaders as well. But it, what might this mean for somebody in HR or learning and development who's thinking about doing something differently? Yeah. So um, I'll try and summarise it as quickly as I can, because if you can't summarise it quickly, that probably isn't a very good idea. So in 1949, there's this guy called Donald Hebb. He was a neuroscientist, one of the early neuroscientists, and he came up with this phrase that some people are familiar with, neurons that fire together, wire together. So it, it, most people know that as you're moving around the world, your neurons are kind of firing and they're somehow reconnecting and somehow your mind is storing stuff. So kind of everybody understands that. But it begs the question, what is it storing? And actually, if you look at all the research on the reliability of memory, what emerges is that memory is mostly confabulation. You know, we're not storing anything exactly. We kind of, when we remember something, when we learn something and recall it, we're sort of make, re, reconstituting it. So what are we reconstituting it from? On. That's the core question. And the effective context model says the only thing that you are storing as you move around the world is your emotional reactions to things. And that's an extraordinary, it's a radical idea. It's an upsetting idea because it says that is all you're storing is your emotional reaction things to things. And it sounds crazy, but actually it turns out your emotional reaction to things incredibly subtle. You know, if I, if I say, imagine the sound of a blue bottle or a mosquito, you have a different emotional reaction to imagining that. But it also does a really good job of accounting for differences, individual differences in memory. So you and I can, and the example I use is we can go on a train journey. And if I'm fascinated by our architecture, then I have a reaction to interesting architecture that I see. But you don't remember any of that because you're fascinated by plants and you say, oh, but did you see this and did you see that? So our, what we care about fundamentally determines our emotional reactions. If we care about people, we notice and we remember what happened to somebody in a meeting. We don't care about people. We, we ignore those things and we don't remember them. So our concerns govern what we store, because it's only our reactions to us that we're to things we're storing. And then our reactions are what we use to recreate. And that's the essence of learning. And you might think, well, okay, you know, that all sounds a bit abstract. What's the implication for what we do? And the implication is twofold. Either somebody really cares about something 
And this is why people use Google. Didn't it ever strike people as odd that Google has no instructional design to speak of? Most of it's text. It does not matter. We still use it intensively as a learning tool because we care about something. Our Wi-Fi is broken. Our widget won't work. Our washing machine, you know, is stuck. And we look it up on Google and we get the answer. We absorb that information because we care. We have a reaction to it. And then there are things in, in corporate and in education where people don't care. They might not care sufficiently about inclusivity, about developmental conversations. They might not care enough as a VP about safety. And there we have to make people care because if, if they don't care, they won't have a reaction. We'll just be dumping content. And this is the essence of my critique of education. It's like, you get a whole bunch of people and you don't know what they care about in a room. I was doing this, I was a lecturer. And you just shovel this content at them. You know, you've got a curriculum to get through. And what you'll find is it's an utter shotgun approach. And we've always known this, and we've always known it's usually ineffective, but um, we never take the time to understand, you know, what each individual in that classroom or that situation cares about to make it more effective. And so that's the essence of it. And, and that's how we have to apply it. And one of the things we talk about, you know, our each model employees as adults, consumers and human beings. And, and one of the things around, you know, I think there's the consumer piece in there that you've mentioned, which is why should... Why should a leader want to develop new habits or behaviours that we've identified as being important to the future of our organisation if they've never had them in the past and they've been quite successful without them? Yeah. Or why should uh, somebody want to, um, why should they be interested in anti-bribery training if mm. actually they don't feel that it's going to add any real value? And this is where we then start to kind of move into the parenting that we do, which is we go, well, we must make them care by putting it on as a mandatory training course. And what we'll yeah. do is we'll frighten them into caring because if they don't do it, we'll tell them off. Um, and mm. we try and add, you know, try and encourage um, our clients to move away from a mandatory training wherever possible. But of course, that leaves businesses exposed. So how do you deal yeah. with something that is an exposure risk for the organization where they kind of have to get their people to care about it a bit so that they can at least pick a box to say, look, you know, our people are aware of the risks of mandatory, of bribery, um, anti-bribery um, and corruption or uh, data protection or whatever it might be. How do you deal with some of those areas that yeah. they've just got to do? So this is obviously something that a challenge that I meet regularly. So some people will know me as the, you know, resources, not courses chap, because it, it rhymes. Um, and a lot of what we, we, I was doing when I was in consulting work was actually looking at areas where people are using courses, a kind of just in case learning, actually translating that into kind of just in time resources or performance support. But the reality is there's only two things we can really do. And I, I really mean this. There's only really two classes of activity. One is building stuff to help people with the challenges that they have, resources. And the other is creating challenges, you know, to, to make people care about things they don't, really putting them in a, you know, in a, a situation. So let me answer your question. Let's say you wanted, for example, leaders to care about developmental conversations. You might have a mandatory program. But actually, the problem is that fundamentally they don't see this part of their role. Something as an example that worked really well is to tell stories about people in their teams or other teams who'd be deep, deeply impacted, who owed a lot to the developmental conversations that line managers had had. And that can sort of turn things around. All of a sudden now they do care. But that's not going to be enough for, for regulatory, for the regulator necessarily. So the answer is sometimes you have to mandate things. 
if you're going to mandate things, think about that split of resources and challenges. If, for example, that your problem is anti-bribery uh, anti or corruption, and I know we, we work on similar stuff at the BBC, identify historically what are the top 10 situations in which problems have occurred, and if necessary, break that down by audience, and then simulate those. Build a simulation of that, a challenge, and then make resources available to people and actually um, the college of journalism actually and the bbc started to do this quite well they were they were actually in legal online they were actually setting re very realistic challenges that journalists might have to face and then saying you know and all the resources you need to refer to are over there so it's not patronizing it's saying here's the challenge and of course the beauty of that model is you still get your mandatory completion you can evidence as an organization that the simulation you put people through is a close match to the real life situations because you've actually yeah. mapped one to the other and you've got a much much more a high degree of confidence that people will actually respond in the right way in those situations than if you just shoved a load of kind of e-learning slideware in front of them so that approach challenges and resources combining the two and mapping it into the target behaviors is a good way i think to tackle compliance and it works in in safety as well you know yeah. identify the top kind of workarounds or safety breaches you know mirror them model them as best you can um, and then set people those challenges and provide them with the resources and and you know you'll see whether or not they can they can successfully navigate them and i think certainly this idea of presenting them with because a lot of a lot of the things that we are trying to get people to get better at are not clear cut are they they're mm. not black and white it's no right answer they are yeah. dilemmas they are ambiguous situations where you're getting them to make a judgment call that you hope is more right than wrong mm. and certainly the grown-up leaders that i've worked with tended to respond better to a dilemma for discussion yeah. and were actually able to have very rich conversations that were very challenging to them rather than presenting them with a kind of, you know, very patronising and, and overly simplistic set of instructions that they needed to follow. They tended to react very badly to that. You mentioned yeah. the resources, not courses, and um, and of course you're, you're well known for that. And, and, uh, and we started by talking about the mistakes we've made with online learning, which we're still doing today, where we take what we've done in classrooms and then put it onto, it perhaps isn't working and put it online. Mm. And can you just kind of describe some of the, um, the approaches that you've seen really work where resources have been produced that are really effective, really attractive for people? What would be the kind of the key, key things that, about those resources that, that make them worthwhile? Yeah, I, I'd love to tell that story, actually, so thank you. Um, one, of, one of the best examples, actually, I've told the story before, is kind of induction at BP. When I joined BP, there were eight hours worth of, of e-learning mm. modules. And as you do, I owned these. I looked at the stats and I discovered that although we had like 6,000 people, I think, joining a year, um, in the four-year lifespan of these eight hours of e-learning modules, only 600 people had ever completed the mandatory induction modules. And they were due for a refresh, <laughs> can you imagine? And so if I'd been an obedient, conventional, you know, learning manager, I would have told around the organization, updated all the information and, you know, carried on. Um, so I said, well, we're not going to do that. We can do something radical. I might get fired. But, you know, we're actually going to talk to the new starters. We're going to talk to people who joined the organization last year. And we got together lots of focus groups. 
and we're going to understand what problems they faced joining. And it's incredible that nobody does that. Nobody does that on any learning program. They all start with content. And you say, yeah. well, no, what don't is start it we need content, to actually. tell them? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so what do you need to tell them? That's how you build an induction program, right? You go around all the senior people and you say, what do you put in the course? <laughs> so we said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to talk to people, find out what they care about, find out what mattered to them, and then we'll build resources that respond to their challenges and needs, you know, the problems that they faced. So we did that. It was a really bizarre, radical idea. Um, and we built something called Discover BP. And that consisted, interestingly, when we talked to them, we found that some of their concerns are really soft focused. Like basically people just want to fit in. That's a really interesting insight. When people join an organization, the key motivation, what they really care about is fitting in. So anything that will tell them how not to screw up, you know, how to look good, how to, how to fit in, make friends and so on, will be hungrily absorbed, however basic. And then there's other very practical stuff, like how do I get my Amex card, how to get my emails on my mobile device. So we built this range of resources, checklists, you know, short videos, talking heads, people saying, well, yeah. when I joined, I did this, and this really helped me, and whatever, animations and so on. We had a million hits to that site. It was all elective. In fact, most of the people in the organization, it was bizarre. We'd gone from being this kind of really unwelcome e-learning shop in the corner to be, we were the single source of truth for BP about who BP are and, and how they operate. We changed the culture of BP without a shadow of a doubt. And so there were short videos on there where people were just giving bits of advice, um, you know, about how to fit in. But to your point, Lucy, the most downloaded asset was a checklist. It was really simple and easy to put together. It was like a simple checklist that said, you know, this um, is what you need to do when you join, because it turns out it makes people very uneasy if they join and, and they, they've got this sense they're not quite sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. And, and that's depresses their engagement and performance. Yeah. So just having a simple step by step. And close behind that was another checklist, which were the top 10 mistakes to avoid making. Because you know, people basically people don't want to look like idiots. And so you, you mentioned him, earlier um, about neuroscience and yeah. this kind of this human behavioral economic stuff. And and actually we know that we are we are members of herds, aren't we? You know, mm, that kind yeah. of herd mentality, we yeah. want to fit in. And, and actually that social aspect of, of onboarding induction mm, is the yeah. bit that we kind of just allow to happen organically. And we focus all of our attention on here's the finance organization structure and, you know, and all of the stuff that actually is kind of they could find out if they needed it. You know, that's a really interesting observation and it's something that's very topical right now because we've got people joining our business who one day are kind of sitting on the edge of their bed in their parents' house with a laptop and the next day are sitting on the bed in the parents' house with a laptop and employed by Deloitte and a consultant. Yeah. And my reflection on this is, although we're absolutely doing our level best to build all of that digital learning support, that probably historically, we overlook the extent to which a lot of that learning was people walking around the office, observing yeah. what people were doing, talking to people, yeah. you know, getting, absorbing the culture, going to meetings, seeing meetings happening. And that I think is a much bigger challenge to address than people realize. You I can't just keep saying, People right. documents and absolutely yeah. right you know that kind of need that the stuff that we absorb whether yeah. we're new young you know early on in our career or just the way in which this culture works how much we actually sort of almost by osmosis and um yeah. we've been doing some work around organizations that that have been doing it's a horrible expression but planned randomized interactions you have mm. to work a lot harder at recreating in a world of you know either lockdown or the future of kind of working from anywhere 
you have to work really hard at the kind of spontaneous interactions where you meet someone at the water cooler mm. you bump into someone you're yeah. because actually that's that's all valid stuff that's all valuable stuff rather you know Let it's me... funny though because uh, i mean i just before we move on I, i've talked to some of the grads joy who've recently joined our business and and who will be joining and they, they say such fascinating things when you listen to them and one of them said we were talking about some of the challenges they faced one of them said look i was asked to lead a meeting and I've never led a meeting before. And I thought two things out of that. Number one, what the blazes? How have we ended up with an education system where there's some of the core things that somebody would have expected to do in a whole range of business, things that people have never, and these, these are not, these are high-flying people have never yeah. had to do before. And the second is, why wouldn't that be part of an induction program? It wouldn't, would it? You know, naturally, to the history of the organization, the strategy, but how to yeah. lead a meeting, you know, simple things like yeah. that, how to properly participate how to do so this is what i mean about we, we're not really cataloging the challenges that people face and providing resources and support for them we yeah. just we, we run the risk of just taking some content and pushing it out of people and that's the problem we're running out of time and um yeah. i could talk to you for hours um but i i just really wanted to get your take on on where you think post covid will what will the, the pandemic have done for us as HR learning professionals that, that we will do differently or we'll stop doing or we'll do more of as a result of this pandemic? What, do you think something there will be something that will have shifted as a result in our, in our kind of area of expertise? I think... It's interesting that strategically many organizations are trying to, to, trying to kind of in, improve or increase the ratio of digital delivery around learning and other kind of HR activity with a view to kind of efficiency and savings. The COVID obviously massively accelerated that. In fact, we've many of us have discovered that almost everything on paper can be delivered digitally. But it's a little bit like the first e-learning you know, um, revolution that I lived through, which is lots of organizations bought in wholesale to e-learning and then sort of discovered that it has its place but it doesn't really work for everything. And so I think we will have learned that we can make much more use of technologies like Zoom than we had. And I think that will be a, a healthier balance. We might spend less time commuting, for example, but that it has its place and that we'll have a better understanding of you know, the role of, of experiences and, and why we use them and how we use them. And I think the future for, for L&D, I would like to think, is a more informed split between digital performance support, stuff which helps you right now, right here with the job, that you, or the tasks that you've got, and experiences which are designed to deliver a broader range of things. They're not content dumping. They're about things like belonging. They're about that social learning. They're about feeling rewarded and valued by an organization. They're an opportunity for discussion and kind of a sense of, of the group. And I think I would like to see that that's a consequence, a, a better balance yeah. of you know asynchronous and, and synchronous activity. Brilliant. Oh, Nick, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lucy. And look after you, yourself for the rest of lockdown. And when it's all over, we will have a proper face-to-face -face cup of coffee. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.